Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. From January 18th to June 28th, 1919, the fate of the world seemed as if it would be decided in Paris. Their leaders of the victorious powers met to determine the nature of the peace it would be, that would be imposed upon Germany and its allies following the armistice of November 11th, 1918. The results were complex and contentious even before the German government signed the final peace treaty, and there were many more treaties yet to be signed by Austria, Bulgaria, Hungary, and Turkey, a process that went on for over an, a year. With me to discuss the Treaty of Versailles, its complexities, controversy, and legacy is Michael S. Nyberg, inaugural chair in war studies at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. He's the author of many books, most recently The Path to War, How the First World War Created Modern America, and The Treaty of Versailles, A Concise History, both published by Oxford University Press. Michael, thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Good to be here. So um, let's talk for very briefly about how the subject of your previous book, um, how World War I changed America um, and created modern America. It's not usually a subject we think about. It's one of those things that in the American survey, people pass over really quickly. Um, I hesitate to say that World War I is more important to America than World War II, but you could actually make that argument in some ways. Uh, there's sort of lasting cultural effects. Certainly, it's impossible to understand the American response to World War II without understanding World War I. So, sure. I think, I think a lot of my colleagues, uh, myself included, were starting to think about the two world wars as really one dynamic, one historical dynamic that starts in 1914 and really doesn't close until 1945, or some historians would say even 1989 when the Cold War 1989, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could even say in the Middle East we're still sort of trying to figure out what replaces the Ottoman Empire. So when you look at this from a wider perspective, what you see is both the uh, emergence of the United States on an international scale, especially when it comes to Europe. Now, the United States, of course, had not been so isolationist as we sometimes like to tell ourselves, but it's the first time that the United States is playing a dominant role in determining the futures of Germany, of France, of, of Britain, of Russia, of countries that uh, had been the traditional global powers, and the U.S. is putting itself on that stage. And when I hear the debates in our current political discourse today, they sound to me very much like 1919 debates. And, and that what I mean by that is those people who argue that the United States uh, should not be involved in multilateral organizations, people who argue that uh, superpowers don't behave that way, that, that it's not beneficial to them or to the system to behave that way, are recalling arguments by Theodore Roosevelt, by Henry Cabot Lodge, made in 1919. And those people who are arguing for a, a really dominant role for the United States in multilateral organizations are making the argument of Woodrow Wilson. They're making the argument of Walter Lippmann. They're making the argument of people uh, who began that real debate in the years right before World War One. World War One makes it a possibility. So when I hear the stuff that we talk about in foreign policy here in the United States, it sounds very fresh to me as an historian uh, because I see it playing out so carefully in World War One. And as you note, 
Uh, it's just not that many people in America that can trace the debate back to that. So they think that it's somehow something new when, in fact, it's not. It's getting to a, a, a fundamental debate this country has been having about foreign policy for a really long time. For now, it's a century old. I mean, it's a century old. It's, a, it's yep. extraordinary how long we've been having this argument. Um, let's talk about I, I try to make the point in the introduction uh, that we think of November 11, 11, 11, 11 as the end of the First World War. Um, technically, well, not technically, it was an armistice, not a, tr not a truce, not a, there was no peace, sort of the situation we have in Korea. Uh, there's always only been an arm, arm, a uh, cessation of hostilities, never an actual uh, truce uh, or peace treaty. Um, so what was the nature of that armistice of November 11th, 1918? So that distinction that you're drawing between armistice and final peace treaty, I think, is important for really two reasons. And the first is that very few Americans made that distinction. So even as early as November 6th and 7th, when the rumors start to come out that Germany's seeking an armistice, you can see the front pages of American newspapers using phrases like "the war is over," uh, "we're done," you know, calling for American troops to come back. Mm -hmm. uh, the second reason why I think that's important is that um, there's a distinction made in 1918-1919 between an armistice, which isn't, which is something negotiated between soldiers and a peace treaty, which is something negotiated between diplomats. And since World War II, since I would say in the United States at least, since about 1940, we've recognized that that's an artificial distinction and really a very bad one, that the soldiers need to be working together with the politicians. But that concept really isn't there in 1919. The American military representative to the Paris Peace Conference, Tasker Bliss, uh, really has a very difficult time getting even meetings with Woodrow Wilson, let alone getting his ideas put forward. So it complicates the process tremendously, and I think it is a major contribution to the way that the peace treaty comes out and to some of the many flaws. Um, this is not to suggest that the soldiers had it right and the diplomats had it wrong. It is to suggest that you needed to have both sets of those voices in the room, and that doesn't happen on the French, British, or American side. What were the terms that was, was did Foch the was the Generalissimo the Supreme Allied Commander as it were the uh, Marshal Foch of France? Yep. Uh, what were the terms? Yeah, he's that, the guy that sets. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, he's he's the guy that sets the terms of the armistice, and he does something that I think is really remarkable and deserves more credit than we than we give him. Uh, in about October of 1918, he sat down and made this list of terms. What what could I accept from the Germans to get them to stop fighting? And then what he did is he said every drop of blood up to that point is on Germany's head because they started the war. But every drop of blood after that point, if I don't accept an armistice, that's on my head. In other words, there has to be a condition at which we say enough. Mm -hmm. So he draws up those conditions, which are a return of France to its uh, – really to its 1870 borders to bring Alsace and Lorraine mm -hmm. back in, uh, an evacuation of France and Belgium. The Germans leave all of their military equipment in place. That is, they can't take anything with them. Uh, and and the acceptance of three semicircular bridgeheads across the Rhine River in case the Germans don't want to sign the final peace treaty. The Allies will already be across the Rhine. Mm -hmm. And he sets those conditions. The Germans reluctantly agree to them. Foch thinks he's done his job. He actually goes to the uh, premier, Georges Clemenceau, with the signed document, the signed armistice. And he says to Clemenceau, my work is done, your work begins, which is a symbol of that kind of very strict separation between the two. Mm -hmm. And then as Foch watches the Paris Peace Conference unfold, he's horrified at what Clemenceau was doing with this great military victory that he has won. What uh, and did the Allies have then all of Germany up to the Rhine and then the bridgeheads? Was that the part of the agreement? 
So this is the, they, they don't have that when when the armistice is signed. The conditions okay. of the armistice is that Germany has to evacuate all of that okay. without damaging anything and mm -hmm. without bringing any military equipment back. So that that's the root of the German politicians who welcome German soldiers back to Germany and they say you were undefeated in the field. The argument being that since the allies never crossed the Rhine River, we didn't really lose this. Right. And again, that was part of what Foch wanted to do was to end the war in a way that would help to build that peace back, because Foch was a young soldier at the end of the Franco-Prussian War when the Germans occupied and did military parades all over France. Foch was trying carefully not to do that, to kind of build the peace bridge back to the Germans. And of course, that's not what ends up happening. Now, Germany accepts the armistice because they believe they have an idea. Well, for, for several reasons. One is they believe that they have an idea of what the final treaty will look like in Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. Is that accurate? Some, some of the German leaders There's believe that? Yeah, there's a couple things going on. The German leaders certainly believe that they're negotiating on the basis of the 14 points, which if accepted, if the treaty were to be based on the 14 points, it really isn't that bad for Germany, given the massive battlefield defeat that they've had. The two other factors that are going on, one is they hope that they'll be able to keep their gains in Eastern Europe, which are massive. Mm -hmm. Most of what we today call Ukraine, Belarus, or was all under German domination. Poland was all under yeah. German domination. It was, uh, and we, the third, we forget that, uh, that there was an Eastern Front in the oh, yeah. First World War. Uh, the Western Front and so Germany dominates. Was, yeah. Yep. And Germany was radically successful at something called the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk in adding almost all of it. Uh, the third factor that I think is probably the most important is the fear German leaders had of a Bolshevik revolution breaking out inside Germany. The German people were uh, certainly short on food um, and, and famine conditions in many places. Bolshevik ideas are spreading. And many German army leaders thought, well, there's no point in winning a war in the West if there's a Bolshevik revolution at home. Better to get the war over with and let's deal with the revolution, which is exactly what they do. And in the two weeks before November 11th, there had been revolts in the shipyards. There had been growing industrial – basically, various cities are in revolt. I mean, Germany looks like it could break apart. Uh, and, That's the fear at any rate. Yeah. yeah. But Bavaria is moving towards independence. Um, so th th that's definitely the fear. Uh, and there is a sense among German conservatives that that internal revolt might be a greater threat to the long-term stability of Germany than even the French and British and American armies. So they they signed the armistice and hope for the best. Um, who the Let's briskly go through the um, some of the personalities in uh, at the Paris Peace Conference. Uh, we've already talked about Foch, who is um, a, a, a remarkable character. Um, they're all kind of remarkable characters. Let's go through them. Lloyd George first. Yeah, there's some big personalities. David Lloyd George is the British prime minister. Um, he's not very popular with the British army for some of the, the conflicts that he had had in trying to wrest strategy away from uh, British generals. Uh, he's a very hard-nosed politician. Um, his mistress was there with him and kept a very interesting diary. I think one of the most interesting first-person accounts uh, of the Paris Peace Conference comes from Francis Stevenson, his, his mistress and his secretary. Um, he wants to get Germany defeated but back on its feet so it can be a trade partner with Britain again. He wants to make sure the French don't come out of this too, too strong so that they become the next kind of hegemonic threat on the continent. Uh, and he's also trying to balance a domestic uh, a disturbance between his party and the challenging conservative party, uh, where there's a lot of really hard feelings. So 
He calls the snap election that he wins handily. It's called the khaki election because of the number of soldiers that run for office. So he's able to come to Paris with a very, very strong hand saying, I've got the mandate of the British people behind me, and this is what I want. I want reparations. I want Germany to pay, but I don't want Germany so humbled that it can't become an active member of the, of the economic system of Europe when the war is over. And he's still running a national government, correct? I mean, because Arthur Balfour, a previous prime minister, is still far, is still a minister in his cabinet and so on? Right. It's still it's it's still a coalition government, yeah. as many British governments are. Um, so there are still uh, some domestic political constraints to have to deal with for five years. They'd kind of put all that aside to deal with the First World War. They're now going to have to deal with Ireland and the empire and the economy and labor conditions for, for returning soldiers. They're going to have to deal with all of that. Um, so that's all kind of in the background. But um, I think Lloyd George comes to Paris with as strong a political hand as anybody could. Uh, he, he's got that mandate from the British people. He's in a fairly strong position. And he's a, he's a very skillful, very wily kind of backroom politician. Mm -hmm. Not well-liked, but well-respected and well-feared. Uh, Georges Clemenceau. Clemenceau, to me, is one of the more interesting people of the 20th century. He um, And the late 19th. And late 19th. When he saw Woodrow... <laughs> Yeah. When he saw Woodrow Wilson's 14 points, he, he famously said uh, God himself was content with just 10. So he's not interested in a peace treaty that's going to that's going to focus on on the 14 points. He's also the man who coined the phrase that war is too important a business to leave to generals. So he wants to make sure that everything is tightly under the control of elected officials. He's also a veteran backroom political negotiator. He's a tough, tough, tough guy. Um He's in his 80s by the time the Paris Peace Conference starts. He gets shot by a would-be assassin. Uh, he has the bullet removed. He takes a nap. He wakes up, and he goes right back to the conference. So uh, he's a, he is determined that Germany will never again threaten France. Of course, we know what's about to happen. We know that that fails. Uh, but he's also involved in this kind of backroom negotiating back and forth. And he feels he's got a few things that he can negotiate away. He's not an imperialist. So one of the things he famously does Palestine, under the so-called Sykes-Picot Treaty, was supposed to be jointly administered by Britain and France. He's happy to give it to Lloyd George in exchange for help in Europe because the empire doesn't mean anything to him. So he thinks he's got a way around it, and he thinks he can um, easily work his way around Woodrow Wilson, who he sees as a sort of um, naive, bumbling academic who really has no business being at a conference like this one. Uh, so to me, he's a very interesting guy. He's very good at these kind of great little one-liners. He's he's very smart. He's a very good politician. He can sense human weakness very easily and and pounce on that weakness. Um, and he's the guy representing a kind of vengeful side of France. He's been a reporter and an editor of his own newspaper. He point out, I forgot this, that he was a foreign correspondent during the American Civil War. That's how old he was. I think he, he married a, he was an American he, woman too, didn't he? He married an American woman, and when he got bored with her and didn't want to be married to her anymore, instead of divorcing her, he was then minister of the interior, which meant that he was in charge of the French police. Uh, he had charges of larceny trumped up on her and then had her deported back to the United States. So, uh, again, a really tough guy. Also, he was mayor of the Montmartre section of Paris during the Franco-Prussian War. Right. He was a physician at one point. Um, you know, a, a really interesting guy. Uh, not a nice guy. Uh, no. This was not an age of um, – kind, glad-handing politicians. These are tough, backroom, negotiating types of politicians. So I, I wrote in another book, I mean, I think Lloyd George and Clemenceau understood one another mm. because they came from the same cloth. Whether they liked each other, I don't think that's quite so accurate, yeah. but they certainly understood each other.
Yeah. Uh, third, we'll, we'll get to um, uh, Orlando of Italy, who is only like there's an asterisk because he isn't there the entire time. Uh, he's certainly the weakest, right. weakest in, in multiple ways. And he's dependent upon his kind of extraordinary foreign minister who is like who is half Welsh, like Lloyd George. Or Lloyd George is all right. Welsh, but the Italian delegation has a problem from the very start because they are uh, demanding more than what the French, British, and Americans think they should be demanding. They don't seem as interested in the kind of international process that that the others are interested in, um, and they don't make their case very well. Uh, Orlando, to me, is really interesting. There's a very famous photograph where Orlando and Lloyd George are standing outside the Hotel Creole in Paris, uh, and they're kind of pointing at each other as if they're deep in conversation. And whenever I've looked at that photograph, I, I really wonder what they could possibly be saying to each other because they did not have a language in common. So uh, Orlando didn't speak English. Uh, Lloyd George certainly didn't speak Italian. And Orlando didn't want that to be seen as a sign of weakness, so he didn't bring translators with him. So it's it's a very strange position that Italy occupies. Uh, and as you note, it's at, at one point in the conference, the Italian delegation picks up and leaves when it's obvious that the Adriatic port city of Fiume is not going to become Italian, mm -hmm. uh, leading – I think it was Lloyd George to say, well, the Italians have fiumed out of the conference. So th there is a sort of um, – uh, pathos about the Italians, uh, the, the realization, I think, that, that they've come asking for too much, they're not going to get it, and they're going to go home to a very angry Italian populace that's going to ask, why didn't we get, well, what was the sacrifice for, what was the point, why did we fight this war? So and he, they're in a very difficult position. He lost an election before June, didn't he, uh, in, in 1918? Correct. Yeah. So he's replaced, I mean, it's, it's, no, it's no great wonder, I think, to most historians why Mussolini and the fascists of Italy are able to move into a kind of political vacuum or political space. It, it's in part created by the failures of this process of making peace. It, it's in part created by the inability of the Italians to go back to their people and really explain what the war was for. I think every victorious power has that problem. Italy really has it. Yeah. And the uh, person I was referring to is Sidney Sonino, who is Italian mm -hmm. foreign minister, half Welsh and a Protestant. That's just kind of extraordinary. Yeah, and when you look at these folks, I mean, they're really bright, well-educated, thoughtful. They can see what's happening. They yeah. can see that this isn't going to go very well. Uh, they make all sorts of classical references and classical allusions and biblical allusions. And so they 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 recognize, and Sonino is a very good example of this, they realize this is probably not going to go very well, that they've bitten off more than they can chew, in effect, and that the world has become an infinitely more complex place by 1919 than it was in 1914. And it was pretty complex in 1914. Yeah. And now they're dealing with a kind of blank slate that they have to deal with. Well, let's talk about some of those complexities because the world of 1919, I mean, arguably, even the the wars that we, we, the Great War or the Great Wars went on for another five years. Um, if we mm -hmm. add them all up, the Russian Civil War, the war in Turkey, um, the Eastern European revolts, uprisings. I know I'm leaving things out. Um they go on for a while after. And as you say, we've got four dissolving empires, Germany, Austria-Hungary, Turkey, and Russia. Um, we've got those revolutions in Germany uh, that we've mentioned, uh, the rebellions, purges, Japanese attempts to grab hold of China, which will ultimately be successful. I mean, things are happening everywhere. And then that's the, and the Middle East as well. So right. what, Ireland what, is, is Ireland. In revolt. Yeah. Ireland's in revolt. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, it's an incredibly complicated world, and and you know the, there's there's different theories for how you might begin to glue it back together. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a few people at at the Paris Peace Conference who recognize that the Europeans don't have the power to glue it back together. So they're going to have to lean on the United States. And the United States quickly becomes a very ambivalent participant in that process. Um, Wilson's unwilling to accept an American mandate for Armenia or Palestine or any of the places that the Europeans want the United States to put their power toward. Mm. Uh, Wilson has said he's not going to do it that way. It's going to be a League of Nations. It's going to be multilateralism, but it's not going to be American force. Uh, and the French and British armies certainly are not in a position to do very much. The Amritsar massacre in India shows how much more dangerous that part of the world is going to become. So it's a part of the world that, that many observers are looking at. And instead of seeing the end of a war, a victorious end of a war, and a chance to really get this right, they just see it crashing down all around them. And they really don't know how they're going to get it back together. And yeah. so there are folks at the Paris Peace Conference that, that recognize this pretty quickly. It's This is part of the pathos of the story as opposed to um, sort of a standard textbook story in which people bumble around and try to do things in the same old way. There's plenty of people at the Peace Conference that realize they can't do it in the same old way. It's just that there's so many problems, they don't know how to get a, a handle on them all. To even comprehend them all is difficult. Right. The League of Nations is an attempt to be a sort of panacea, sort of one shot. So if you have all these problems going on in the world, Wilson's argument really is the only way to solve it is to create an organization like the League of Nations that can have some sort of international mandate to solve all of them. And if you're successful and the League of Nations can begin to do this, then it begins to build prestige among the people of the world as a method for solving it. And Wilson was certainly not naive enough to think that it's going to fix everything. But you're looking for a a structural solution, knowing that each one of these individual problems uh, by itself is going to be enough of a challenge. So they weren't stupid and they weren't naive, but they certainly – didn't, I think, didn't fully understand the ways in which the world was changing right before their very eyes. I for, forgot to talk about Wilson, but that is a lovely uh, point to quote you to yourself. You write that no other American politician would have approached his role in Paris in the way that Wilson did. And you compare him to the alternatives, which would be Charles Evans Hughes, who really almost won the election in 1916. It was a very uh, closer than people realize historically. Or Theodore Roosevelt, who might have run in 1916 and probably gotten uh, the election, certainly have beat Wilson in 1916. Um, So why is Wilson different? How is he different? So Wilson's a really complicated historical figure. I have to say the more I study him, the less I like him. Um, He's certainly very arrogant. He doesn't listen even to kind of friendly critics at the Paris Peace Conference, people who genuinely or generally agree with where he wants to go, but bring up legitimate problems with with kind of the vision that he's putting together. He doesn't really like compromise. He thinks he's got it figured out. Uh, I don't I don't subscribe to the theory that he really thought God was kind of speaking through him, which some of his older biographers have suggested, but he certainly thinks he's the smartest guy in any room and has this figured out. Um, So he's not listening to the military advice of Tasker Bliss, who's, I think, very on point and very thoughtful on these issues. And he's not listening to the um, advice of people who are telling him that America's number one instrument of power in the post-war world won't be military, it will be economic. Mm -hmm. And Wilson doesn't want to listen to that either. I also think he's failed to understand that the midterm elections of 1918, which gave control of the U.S. Senate to the Republican Party, are going to create a massive problem for him, no matter what kind of treaty he puts together. So there are a lot of problems with the way that Wilson's going about it. 
He thinks he's smart enough, clever enough, can appeal to the people enough that the people are on his side. They're not on the, the Republican Party side. They're not on George Clemenceau's side, that he can appeal over the, their heads uh, to, to, the, to their peoples to fix the problems that need to be fixed. Right. So, you know, we, we, you know, the phrase we would use here at the Army War College is he's not tying ends, ways and means together in a way that minimizes risk. All he's doing is is figuring out what he wants the ends to be and not realizing the gaps and getting from point A to point B. He, he does make, doesn't he make one sort of uh, very quick, quick in quotation marks trip back to Boston, I think, to give a speech in a way of influencing mm -hmm. public opinion? I mean, yeah, he's, he's yeah, he's certainly aware that he's going to have to deal with American public opinion because he's not going to be able to get this treaty through the U.S. Senate. Um, and um, the founding fathers of this country put together a constitution that said the treaties have to be approved by a two-thirds majority. That's a high bar to reach. And sometimes when I'm talking with student groups and others and I say if the founding fathers had written in simple majority, it's entirely likely the United States ratifies the Treaty of Versailles and joins the League of Nations. Mm -hmm. They didn't do that. Obviously, they had no idea what was coming. Yeah. They, they decided to make it a two-thirds, to make it a high bar, and that means that Wilson's got a real problem on his hands. And that, that also assumes that the League of Nations was stopped what was coming, which is – right. That's a, that's a separate uh, problem. Um, yes, it is. The uh, And because – if we have LBJ on one end of dealing with the Senate and negotiating, Wilson has to be on like the other end. Uh, th that, sort yeah. of <laughs> that sort of intransigence in dealing in negotiation. Well, that's with the other world leaders, let alone with the Senate. He's never going to negotiate with the Senate. So his idea is somehow he'll persuade the people and they'll convince their senators to vote for the League of Nations. Yeah, another example I like to throw out, the, the Iran nuclear treaty that came out that President Obama was pushing a couple of years ago, mm -hmm. there were American senators who said, I'm not going to sign this or vote for this no matter what's in it. Mm -hmm. So that mentality is there in 1919 as well. There are senators led by Senator Lodge of Massachusetts who hate the very idea of multilateralism, who hate the very idea of a great power like the United States voluntarily signing away some of its own powers. Uh, they believe that the the, the League of Nations is unconstitutional because it's taking powers that are reserved to the U.S. government and giving them to an international body. So some of these people he was never going to win over. They're known today as the irreconcilables. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, it, again, it's interesting to me that we haven't fully gotten rid of that. There are still senators in international treaties who will make the same argument. So, mm -hmm. again, these ideas are there. Uh, what's what's important is that as the United States is becoming a more important country on the world stage, we haven't fully wrestled with ourselves about what we want that role to be, let alone negotiated it with other great powers. Now, Wilson has a number of, um, in the 14 points, and, and and during negotiation, he has a number of sort of what we might describe as sort of general hand waves. Oh, it'll be fine. Just do this and everything will work out. And one of these is self-determination, which you go into it in, in some detail in a short book. Um, what is self-determination? What's it supposed to be? And what are the problems with it? So self-determination is actually not a phrase that Wilson coins. Uh, Lenin uses it before Wilson does. Uh, David Lloyd George uses it before Wilson does. But the fundamental idea behind it is that as these empires break up, the, the German, the Austro-Hungarian, the Russian, and the Ottoman, that the people themselves ought to have a say in the form of government that they have and the shape of the states that they get. So that 
there should be something that is identifiably Romanian where Romanians live. It should be something identifiably Czech where Czechs live. The two problems that you quickly run into, of course, are number one, nobody can agree where those borders ought to go, uh, which is an enormous problem because people under the Austro-Hungarian Empire didn't think of themselves in quite that same way. They may identify as Polish because they speak Polish, but they understood themselves to be part of a wider empire. So if they lived in Vienna, then moved to Krakow, then moved to Trieste, then moved to Prague, it didn't matter to it, it, yeah. you. Didn't have a separate identity in that sense. My great grandfather. So figuring out my great grandfather Zamboni was not a big fan of Italians. He was yeah a, okay. He, yeah, he, was, he was a subject of the emperor, and he had fought for the of emperor. Course. And as you know, he he could he obviously he spoke Italian as his first language, but you know he wasn't big into Italy. So you get you get parts of the Austro-Hungarian Empire that are like this. They're twenty percent Croat and thirty percent Italian and twenty percent Polish. And you know how do you untangle all of that? And the second problem that comes up, uh, second major problem that comes up, is determining who gets to be one of these new nations. So Wilson doesn't think that the Irish are a nation. He thinks they're well represented inside the British Empire. He doesn't think that Jews deserve to have their own nation, which is going to create. Really, that the anti-Semitism problem of the 20s and 30s is created by this process, which creates national self-determination. The major group in Europe that doesn't get that is Jews. So there's no nation-state protecting them. There's no representation for them in the League of Nations as a separate group. So they're exposed legally and they're exposed politically. And the way this was supposed to get solved for, say, Romanians living in Hungary is that the Romanian government would kind of represent their interests and there'd be a kind of exchange between governments. Well, that doesn't happen for, for Jews in Eastern Europe. So, so national self-determination, as the army would say, it's an idea that briefs well, it sounds great, it looks good on paper. Uh, putting it into practice is maddeningly difficult. What happens when you cut those borders in a way that upsets some of these populations? And what happens when you have people who think that this process has created a, a series of winners and losers, and they believe they're on the losing side. Mm -hmm. and, and you have to put states together by other criteria as well. So you point out uh, Czechoslovakia, right. which is the Czechs and the Slovaks, that uh, didn't work after 1989. Um, but they're given Sudetenland, which is German or heavily German, but it's a defensible border. Uh, Poland gets lots of area territory, which is not Polish. I mean, it's Western Ukraine. Um, it's Catholic, I guess, but the criteria for choosing this are odd. Yeah, so they're, they're balancing three things. They're balancing national self-determination with economics. That is, you don't want to create a state whose borders uh, fit the national self-determination criteria, but a state that cannot feed itself. And Poland is is the one of the ones they're worried about. So if you only give Poland agricultural areas with no access to the sea and no coal, you're creating an impoverished state that won't be able to contribute to the global economy and the regional economy. So they cut that so-called Polish corridor in order to give Poland a route to the sea, and they give the, the Poles part of, of Silesia, which is rich in, in coal. Then they have to, to deal with the fact that you have to create countries who, that can defend themselves, that have borders that they can defend. Otherwise, you're just creating instability and you're creating imbalances of power. So they're trying to, to kind of balance out these three things and it ends up creating things like Sudeten Germans inside Czechoslovakia. It ends up creating things like the Polish corridor and the city of Danzig and Memel being uh, internationalized. These are these are issues. These are are cases where the three criteria here are actually working against each other, and that makes it difficult. And there's a fourth criteria. Both in those cases, they're also trying to cut German Germany down a little bit. 
Right. Well, they've also made a decision that Germany is too big, mm -hmm. uh, that Germany has to be reduced in size. So Germany is reduced by about one seventh in Europe. Uh, part of that is Alsace-Lorraine. Uh, but they're trying to figure out a way to, to, to deal with Germany. And one of the arguments is that the problem isn't the Germans. The problem is that one state is too big. Therefore, the balance of power is is out of whack. Was so it's it's a complicated problem they're trying to deal with. Was there a thought? Um, did the French propose? I, I'm not aware of this from the book. Did the, did they um, propose even splitting up Germany to, if not its pre 1870 state, but something uh, more like it? There is a fascinating discussion about taking the Rhineland, that is the part of Germany west of the Rhine River, and not annexing it to France, but making it an independent state that would be tied economically and strategically to Belgium, Luxembourg, and Switzerland, and kind of creating a, a buffer zone between Germany and France. Mm -hmm. And German nationalists go go to great extremes. They say, well, look, this is a region that produces wine. It doesn't produce beer. Therefore, it, it really never belonged to Germany. Um, that argument, of course, doesn't go very far. Uh, Lloyd George is the guy who quashes it. He says, if you do this, you're going to create an Alsace-Lorraine in reverse. You're going to make the Germans angry, and they're just going to want more conquest. So uh, there is an idea to do that. There are ideas in the East. There's a million ideas floating I, around Paris in 1919. I would imagine splitting Bavaria away is the first thing I would would have thought. I mean, it's uh, they've 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 suffered somewhat during the. Uh, the, the uh, culture war, the culture kampf, you know, and they're Catholic. They're not part of the rest, really, you know. They've got yeah, their own so king. The, so that this comes up too. There is a moment when it looks like the um, Germans might not sign the Treaty of Versailles, and one of the proposals is to go to the Bavarians and say, uh, if if you want, if you'll agree to this, uh, we'll cut you off from Prussia. Prussia will pay the reparations, and you won't. And mm. in effect, trying to bribe the Bavarians into doing something else. Um, you know, ultimately, the British don't want to do any of this. They want they want a strong Germany in the center of Europe. They just want a Germany that you know plays well with others. In effect, right? They want they want the Germany that eventually comes out that the Germany that Europe has today, which is part of a multinational, uh, multilateral system for economic strategy, all these other things. That's what the British want to create. Let's talk about some of the, briskly some of the nuts and bolts of the treaty. Um, there's the Covenant and the League of Nations. Those are sort of the best-known parts. Um, could you describe what those are? The Covenant is... So the co yeah. yeah, the Covenant of the League of Nations, uh, they use the phrase covenant because uh, Wilson wants to give it a kind of holy, uh, you know, religious kind of connotation. Much of it is written by Jan Smuts, the South African. Um, the idea is to create an international organization that will uh, represent the, the will of the, of, the, of the international community. Uh, it requires the... Uh, near unanimous consent of the members to do anything, which is a structural problem that that is built into the, the to the League of Nations. Um, it is supposed to enforce all kinds of interesting things. The Treaty of Versailles talks about its role in stopping the opium trade, stopping child labor, uh, protecting migratory birds because the birds help to help to um, keep agriculture going. They help to you know, like, like bees do. They help to pollinate uh, things. So uh, they talk about labor rights because they want to undercut the Soviet model so that workers will be paid uh, a living wage no matter where they are, as, as understood in that part of the world. So the Covenant of the League of, the, the League of Nations uh, parts of the Treaty of Versailles are some of the most interesting. Uh, they are um, some of the most complex, mm. and they are intended really to create a world that will be more just and they are intended to create a world that will very much undercut the Soviet Bolshevik model mm -hmm. that Lenin and his crew are, are starting to put out. Now, the mandate schemes are something entirely different. 
Um, they are much more old-fashioned. You mentioned them. What are they? So this is an idea that is actually another Jan Smuts uh, uh, concept being, being pushed forward. The notion is, what do you do with the former parts of the German and, and Ottoman empires, specifically in Africa and in the Middle East? So if you take a place like Syria or Palestine uh, or what becomes known as Transjordan, for example, uh, what do you do? Or do you want to give them independence? Uh, the British and French are too imperial to really think that they can govern themselves. But if you annex them directly to your empire, that's going to look kind of weird, too. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that these parts of the world are given um, as mandates. That is to say that the British take uh, what we now call Iraq, uh, uh, Jordan, Palestine, Israel, uh, and the French are given basically what we today call Syria and Lebanon, though it's not exact. It, it's close enough for our discussions here. And the idea is that the, the, the mandate power will govern in the name of the League of Nations until such time as those places are ready for self-determination. So if you want to put this in an optimistic spin, as Smuts did and as Wilson did, uh, you're taking on the burden. You, as the European power, are taking on the burden to help these people develop a government and develop a society so that they can become independent states. Uh, if you're much more cynical, like a Gandhi or a Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam uh, or the leaders of the, of the independence movements in Egypt and China, China and Korea. Uh, it's just imperialism with a different cover. Uh, and eventually that's what Wilson believes they are. And Wilson says the United States doesn't want any part of this, even though the Europeans wanted the United States to take on a couple of mandates to be involved in this too. And Smuts, the South African, wanted South Africa to take on a mandatory role in Southwest Africa, former German Southwest Africa. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have the strange alternate history in which there's the American mandate in Armenia. Right, which the Europeans would have been very happy to give the United States. And yeah. in fact, there's some talk about giving the Americans a mandate in Anatolia, in, in, in mainland Turkey, uh, maybe even giving the United States a, a mandate over Palestine, which would have been a very interesting turn of historical <laughs> events. Yeah. Um, but Wilson sees this as just be it's just too imperial. It's not what he thinks he wants the United States doing. Um, let's talk about dissenters to Versailles. Um, they appear while the treaty, the conference is going on. Is that that's correct? Keynes has already basically, Keynes has already decided that he doesn't like it. Um, Bullitt, yeah. uh, William Bullitt of Philadelphia, who's later ambassador of the Soviet Union, uh, who's already been on a, a very odd mission to Lenin. He decides he doesn't like it. It's really quite interesting how the opposition to it begins actually within the conference uh, it's a, it's really remarkable. Yeah. There are a lot of very high-powered people who get very disillusioned very quickly, yeah. and you mentioned some of them. Bullet, my favorite, Bullet writes a letter in which he says, I'm going to go lie on the sand and watch the world burn to hell. Ferdinand yeah. uh, Ferdinand Foch stays away. Tasker Bliss thinks about resigning his commission at one point. Yeah. Uh, in part, this is because there are so many decisions that they're making about so many parts of the world that they're bound to upset people with almost every decision they make. The wider problem for Bliss and for Bullet is that they see the United States giving up its principles and making decisions based on the very things the United States said that it was going to prevent. Uh, Keynes is upset because he looks at the economic uh, consequences of this treaty. He writes a very famous book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace, in which he concludes that this is going to cause a collapse of the global economy within about 10 years, which, of course, it does. Uh, an American engineer by the name of Herbert Hoover agrees. Uh, it's kind of a tragedy that, that Hoover is the guy who ends up uh, the American president when that happens, when mm -hmm. the global economy just comes apart uh, because of everything that Hoover had done to try to 
relieve the, the, the suffering of people in Belgium and Poland and Germany. Uh, so there are people who recognize these problems right away. They, they recognize different problems. Keynes is economic, Foch is strategic. I think for Bullitt, it's, uh, it's idealism as much as it is anything else. And Tasker Bliss can see it too, that all you're really doing is giving people grievances and grievances are not a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't want a treaty that makes kind of everybody mad about something. Uh, and they can all see it coming and there's nothing they can do to stop it. I mean, Keynes, though, is concerned about one thing we didn't mention. Um, it's, he believes reparations are going to be so severe they bring down the world economic system. Isn't that right? Uh, or that's right. So and reparations are the, never really paid. I mean, at least they're they they cut off payments. So it wasn't it wasn't reparations that brought down the economy in 1929. Well, it wasn't. It wasn't. So um, the the reparations <laughs> are to be determined by a committee uh, of the victorious powers, and that the idea behind that really is if Germany looks like it's democratizing and looks like it's beginning to play well with others, then you can bring the reparations down. Or you can let them pay in kind. You can let them pay in coal or dairy cows or whatever. Uh, if Germany looks like it's going to go down the same road and cause trouble again, then you would increase the reparations to take resources away from Germany. So Keynes had a problem with reparations because he thought that all that all that you're going to end up doing is just creating a cycle of debt. What he wanted to do, instead of reparations payments going around the world, what he wanted to do is to have the governments decrease the debt that they owed each other so that you would just overall just reduce debt so that the wealth that was created at the end of the First World War would not go to debt repayment. It would go to economic growth. Now, the only way that can work is if the United States is willing to play along. And for lots of reasons, Woodrow Wilson was not willing to play along. So Keynes could see a world in which all of the economic recovery that happens after the First World War will merely go from banker to banker to banker to repay debts. It, it won't be used to recreate a global uh, world order so that any any money that comes out of it will be, in effect, um, false money. It'll be based on nothing. It'll be a, it'll be an artificial wealth creation. And again, the roaring 20s, the collapse in 1929, all make Keynes look like, well, frankly, like the genius that he was. He saw it. He saw what was coming and couldn't get anybody to listen to him. Yeah, well, I'm not a monetarist enough to disagree with you. But um, if I had one around, I'm sure they would. So <laughs> what um, Germany did sign, there was some doubt about it. We referred to that uh, earlier. Um, uh, but in the end, the sort of strange cobbled together German government did actually agree to the terms of the treaty. And yet, um, just as we're wrapping this up, it it's hard to, after concluding your book to see the Treaty of Versailles. I mean, what were its consequences? It, it didn't change the world. Um, it had ramifications, but sometimes um, I think it's, I think, I don't know how you feel about this, but it, but it would seem that it's – a lot of people in 1938 thought they were going to war because of the failure of the Treaty of Versailles. I think that's wrong in retrospect. Um, a lot of Wilsonians um, in 1944 thought that if we'd had a League of Nations, there never would have been a World War II. That seems a little bit too overwrought to me. Um, what were the implications of the, of the Treaty of Versailles? So I think there's two things that are going on with the treaty itself, and then we can talk about the World War II case, which is interesting too. But um, 
almost as soon as the Treaty of Versailles is uh, – almost as soon as the ink is dry, Clemenceau loses all of his political power in France. Woodrow Wilson has his stroke trying to sell it to the American people. Hmm. So the very people who had a stake in wanting to see it work are gone. Lloyd George is there, but he doesn't really believe in the treaty anyway. Lloyd George thinks we're going to sign it. We're going to do the best we can, but it's really not going to work. Then comes the so-called war crisis in 1922 when Germany is supposed to give a bunch of coal to France uh, as part of reparations payments. German miners refuse to, to dig the coal out of the ground if it's just going to go to France. The French army sends troops in. They kill a bunch of German miners or they shoot a bunch of strikers. The British and the Americans are horrified. I think that crisis, the so-called war crisis, is the effective end of the Treaty of Versailles. Nobody after that believes in it anymore. Mm -hmm. What it does, though, is that it begins to take on a second life as a symbol. Mm -hmm. And we haven't talked about it much, but there is a clause buried in Article 231, which says that Germany is responsible. Germany bears primary war right. guilt. It's only after the war crisis, and really, it's really only into the late 1920s, when that part of the treaty comes back into the public rhetoric as the dominant part of the treaty. So it's the treaty as signed and not really enforced, and then it's the treaty as symbol. Mm -hmm. And then by the time you get to 1945, I think, I mean, I, I, would, I, would, I would argue this quite strongly, the Americans and British especially have decided that the peacemaking process in 1945 is going to be the 180-degree inverse of what it had been in 1919. Right. John Maynard Keynes is back at the end of World War II. A lot of people were at both conferences. Mm -hmm. So, um, so uh, there, there even, is a sense – Even Herbert Hoover is now advising Harry Truman at the very end of that's the – That's right. I mean it's – which is extraordinary – recover resurrection people don't know about it but he gave a lot of advice to uh, um but to truman um so all these yeah, people he, are back he did that in part because he thought truman was too stupid to handle this well, handle Tr something truman as complex also as this. truman also um, asked him yeah yeah but hoover doesn't have a very high opinion of of harry truman uh, at least not in 1945 uh but so they they decide that at the end of world war ii there won't be reparations we'll just do an occupation zone system instead. There won't be a single treaty for Harry Truman to have to negotiate as Woodrow Wilson did. Uh, they get the UN and the International Monetary Fund, the Bretton Woods, all those agreements uh, Truman gets congressional approval of before he goes to negotiate. So they do it very, very differently than they had done it in 1919. So, so that the Treaty of Versailles by 1945 has become a kind of warning more than it's become anything else. Mm -hmm. So... In the end, how do you how would you summarize the Treaty of Versailles uh, and its legacy today? You've touched on a couple of these uh, a couple of these uh, similarities of, of conditions. Uh, would you like to add anything to that? Yeah, I think we you know one thing that we did. One thing that came out in 1919 was the understanding that in a dynamic changing world, you don't write static treaties. So at the end of the World War II, there is there are diplomatic agreements that come in. At the end of the Cold War, we didn't do this the way they did it at Versailles. There was no grand agreement with everything written down on paper uh, that is going to become overcome by events within a couple weeks of signing it. That we, we learned not to do it that way. I think the Treaty of Versailles is really the high point of European imperialism. Uh, it's the high point of the, or at least the Paris Peace Conferences, the, the conference writ large. Uh, the notion that you could just sort of move these pieces on a chessboard uh, in the way that you wanted to do. And again, the Amritsar massacre in India, the French war in Syria. Uh, immediately make it clear that it's not the old imperialism, what, what uh, the Harvard historian Erez Manella calls the Wilsonian moment, the kind of um, argument for the first time that, hey, wait, if national self-determination is good enough for the people of Poland, why is it not good enough for the people of Korea or Egypt or India? Uh, now those ideas are, are all through the world. They are international ideas. 
And the other thing that I think is a legacy of this uh, is is the sort of um, the notion of multilateral organizations as the way to solve some of these problems. There are people who believe deeply that multinational organizations like the World Trade Organization, uh, International Monetary Fund, United Nations bind states together and give them incentives for cooperation. They're not perfect, but they incentivize cooperation over conflict. There are other people uh, personified by many people in the current administration who just think this is a utopian fantasy. Mm. And again, those borderlines are drawn in 1919, and they continue to be deeply influential in the way that we think about foreign affairs today. My guest today has been Michael S. Nyberg. He is inaugural chair in War Studies at the Army War College and is author of The Treaty of Versailles, A Concise History by Oxford University Press. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.